What's up, everybody? Brendan here. Just want to hop on real quick before the show starts and just reiterate the type of format that I'm hoping for the show. On Mondays, every Monday, every week, I'm going to bring you guys fresh, hot, current, relevant, environmental news. On Thursdays of every week, I'm hoping to bring you either lectures from myself or interviews with the experts on particular topics that they are well-versed in and have a wealth of knowledge about. I have been recording like crazy and interviewing a lot of people, so there's a lot of really cool shows coming. I'm so excited for you guys to hear them. But for today, I have another lecture for you. It's about carbon sequestration. You're about to hear it in just a moment. But for all those that are providing feedback and asking questions, I'm super stoked. Thanks so much for doing that. The two best ways to help support the show, if you guys are interested, is writing a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, as well as sharing the Spotify link on your Instagram stories. That's also very helpful as well. Cool? All right. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. I'm so stoked. Here comes the next lecture series. Let's get this show on the road. DJ, drop that music. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Today I'm going to be continuing our lecture series and talking to you about carbon sequestration. Wow, that's a fancy word, isn't it? Sequestration. What does that mean? Well, sequestration, as its definition, means to hide something. But in the context of carbon sequestration, today we're going to be talking about storage. As we talked about a few weeks ago, one of the major contributors to climate change is excess carbon gases in the atmosphere. We talked about methane, which is CH4, and we talked about potential solutions for reducing that with biodigesters in our first interview with Jeff Bishop. But the other major gas in the atmosphere that's adding this insulation that's warming the planet is carbon dioxide, CO2. And so ultimately, the goal of trying to mitigate climate change is to reduce the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In other words, to sequester carbon, to store it in other areas, ideally biological systems, so it's not in the atmosphere, but it's in organic materials, such as in our soils or in plants. You see, because plants have an amazing process, right? It's called photosynthesis. I want everybody to just go ahead and just take a deep breath in. Let it out. You've now just benefited from the process of photosynthesis. What do I mean by this? Well, plants convert CO2 into oxygen. We know about this. We learned it in our fifth grade biology class. And so ultimately, the plants are so magnificent because they have a unique and biological capacity to sequester carbon for us. They take carbon dioxide, they bind it with water, and through the catalytic energy of the sun, they can create carbohydrates and the oxygen you just breathed in. All right, so let's go back. The problem is, is that there is a high level and increasing amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. While at the same time, plants are this incredible organism that can draw down, that can sequester and can use this carbon dioxide to create beautiful things. 
like the oxygen that we breathe and of course the food that we eat. But they can also do this really incredible thing by storing the carbon in the soil. Yes, they're using the carbohydrates that they synthesize to allow their plants to grow and in that way they're storing carbon in the plant material like a tree that grows is made of carbon and there's carbon in that trunk there's carbon in those leaves but more than that what they're doing is they are sending that carbon to their root systems and they're storing the carbon in the soil and so when we talk about soil carbon we're talking about soil organic matter and soil organic matter is such a incredible thing it brings life to the soil it's it's a type of glue for the soil it holds in nutrients it holds in water and it creates an overall better ecosystem for plants to thrive for microorganisms in the soil to thrive like fungi and bacteria and worms and all the beautiful life this soil is a magnificent ecosystem it's not dirt right i had a, I had a professor in college who said dirt is a curse word. When we talk about soil, we have to use its proper name because it is full of life. Dirt is death. However, soil, when it's dark and it's rich, it's like a slice of chocolate cake that is full and teeming with life and it is full of organic matter. So again, why does organic matter matter? <laughs> because it's storing carbon in its soil as opposed to leaving it in the atmosphere to warm the earth and drive climate change. So when we talk about mitigating climate change, we're talking about reducing carbon, right? And these strategies more often than not are surrounded around plants. And we hear it all the time. We talk about reforestation. Let's plant trees. Let's plant trees. Why? Because they can hold carbon in their plant material, but also add carbon into the soil. And so reforestation strategies are effective ways to mitigate carbon in the atmosphere. And we learned a little bit about this with Craig coming on the show to talk about his work with Eden Projects, doing reforestation, but also using agroforestry as a tool to not only sequester carbon, but to be able to bring forth fruit and an economic resource for farmers in nations that are economically poor. And so one of the big drivers also for then adding carbon to the atmosphere is the opposite of reforestation, which is deforestation. Because not only are you losing all the carbon that was in that tree, because as the trees are cut down, they begin to decompose. And as things decompose, they gas off carbon back into the atmosphere. So deforestation directly adds carbon to the atmosphere through the decomposition of the trees. But as you remove vegetation from the soil, all that soil that was also trapped and stored in the soil in the form of organic matter also begins to gas off as well. And so now you have this indirect effect of deforestation where when you remove vegetation, now everything that was stored in the soil also gases off. And so if we want to be effective in drawing down carbon and keeping it there, we need to plant more trees and maintain those forests so that we can not only maintain carbon in the tree structure, but also in the soil as well. And this is such a critical point because research has shown that 80% of the carbon that is found in terrestrial ecosystems are not actually even in the plant material at all. It's in the soil. And so much more than the trees itself, it's that the trees are guarding the carbon stored in the soil. 
And this is why it's so important to leave vegetation and not have any bare soil. And you see this in organic agriculture now where you're using mulch. You see this in cities now where now we're trying to have living pathways, right? Instead of sidewalk and pavement, we have green areas, right? We're always trying to keep the soil covered because not only does this help carbon storage, this also helps reduce weeds. This helps retain moisture, which just creates, again, an overall better ecosystem, not just for the plants, but also the animals and the humans that depend on those regions. So in respect to climate change, losing trees is an ecological issue, yes, but it's not as great of an issue as the loss of our soil's capability to sequester carbon. And this cannot happen if vegetation is constantly stripped, whether it's deforestation or through the process of tillage, which is a common practice in agriculture. After every season, you want to remove the plants, you want to remove weeds, you go through with essentially a blender and you blend up the soil and it makes it nice and fluffy, makes it really easy to plant your next season's crop into it. But when you're tilling up the soil, you're not just removing weeds or making a new seed bed you are churning up that ecosystem, you're killing the microorganisms, and you are allowing easily for that carbon to again return to the atmosphere. This type of agriculture is very devastating, to not just being able to grow plants effectively because now you are eliminating this glue that's in the soil that can retain moisture and nutrients for the plants to grow, but again, you have these unintended climate impacts. Now, in the context of the United States, we do tillage. But in subsistence farming areas, smallholder farmers don't have access to this type of machinery or technology to till the soil. And so more often than not, this looks like slash and burn agriculture. What is slash and burn agriculture? It's essentially, again, at the end of your season, you don't want this crop anymore. You don't want these weeds. You just set the field on fire. And this helps, again, just eliminate all that plant material. But again, what is so devastating to this is that now you are stripping the soil bare by burning it and you're gassing off all the nutrients, you're gassing off all the organic matter, and you're depleting your soils in the long run. This can have a quick added benefit, right? Because you have this charcoal on top and, and biochar has been used as a fertilizer and is starting to gain some more traction. But if you're doing this season after season after season, you will have long-term negative impacts on your soil. And again, you continue to gas off these greenhouse gases into the environment. And so these conventional annual cropping systems or these subsistent degrading systems in tillage or slash and burn agriculture are creating a huge negative consequence on the environment, but also provide a tremendous opportunity to reverse this. And just like reforestation is the opposite of deforestation, conservation agriculture is the opposite of slash and burn or tillage. And agriculture. So what is conservation agriculture? It is the mindset that soil is the most important component of an agricultural system. And as we will hear from Dr. David Grantstein in the coming weeks when he talks about organics, there is a huge connection between healthy soil, healthy plants, and therefore healthy people. And so if we want to maintain a healthy environment, it all starts with our soils. And so conservation agriculture is a form of agriculture that seeks to prioritize the conservation, the maintenance of the soil. 
And you see this on demonstration in the Palouse. The Palouse is a wheat growing region in Eastern Washington, where I did my master's at Washington State University. And they're growing in such an extreme environment. In some cases, some of these farms are on 45 degree slopes. And when you farm on hillsides, when you farm on steep grades, it's so easy for soil to wash off, to blow away when rains come or storms come or winds come. And so this is a huge issue, especially for them, because if you go and you till your field and then a heavy rain comes, you've now loosened up all that soil and then the rain just washes it all away. And over time, you're going to eventually hit bedrock and your soil quality is going to decrease because as you go from the surface down to the bottom, the soil ability to have nutrients in it, to retain water, is depreciated. And so for farmers to be truly sustainable, they need to maintain the soil. They need to maintain that top layer soil that has all the nutrients, that has all the air, that has all the water, that has all these microorganisms that are beneficial for production. And so conservation ag is the movement to reduce tillage. And you'll see these systems like reduced till or, or no till, where instead of coming through with this blender and churning up your soil at the end of the season, you leave the material, you leave this, this stubble, this vegetation on the surface so that you're always trapping in that carbon and it doesn't gas off. And now you just have this other machine that comes through when you're ready to plant again that can kind of cut through that top mulch layer or cut through some of that stubble to place the seed where it needs to go. And by doing this, you are actually going to be promoting so much more soil health. And this makes sense, right? Because when you think about ecosystems, ecosystems are fine-tuned, perfect systems, right? When they're not touched by humans, they continue to thrive on and on and on, right? Forests continue to grow, grasslands continue to thrive. And so when we think about prairies, and we think about where agriculture started in the Midwest, that was all prairie land that was untouched, right? Never any tillage. This was just soil that was left full of grass, never bare. And as a result, you had all this topsoil. And when agriculture really started in this area, it was booming. You had bumper yields and crops that were thriving because you had had all this soil organic matter and all these nutrients that had been stored in the soil because it had never been touched or tilled. And that's when you saw the Dust Bowl, right? Because then we started coming in with our machinery and our industrial equipment, and we started churning up all the soil, heavy winds come, and boom, all that topsoil blew away because you loosened it, you disturbed that ecosystem. And so as we look to the ideal, as we look to nature, as we look to prairie grass systems, we want to try and mimic that in our agricultural systems, like when we grow our wheat. And so if grass systems are perfect and their soil is full of organic matter, why is that? Oh, because they are left undisturbed. So let's try to mimic that in our agriculture systems. Let's not try to till so much and leave that stubble and allow our soil to thrive and continue to sequester all the carbon that is available in our atmosphere. So in essence, what we need to do to mitigate climate change, to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere, is try to maintain and draw down that carbon into our soils. And we do this by reducing our tillage, but also by transitioning our annual cropping systems, plants that are grown one year, die, and then restart the next, 
and transition these into perennial systems, systems that are permanent in nature. They go for multiple seasons. Because again, if you can grow something for multiple seasons, that means less intervention, less disturbance in the agroecosystem year after year. And so I want to just transition a little bit into what are some potential solutions that are happening in real time that are happening in our agricultural sector to try and draw down more carbon, either through re-engineering root systems or by changing our cultural practices. So let's get into the first. The first is this idea of can we genetically engineer our crops to store more carbon? And this is something that the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California is pursuing through their Harnessing Plants initiative, where they are essentially studying the plant genome of Arabidopsis, which is a watercress. It's like the model plant genome that's been sequenced first and where a lot of the genetic studies are taking place. Because if we can identify genes in this plant, perhaps they are in similar locations and control similar things in other plants. And so what their goal is, is to essentially find the genes that trigger increased root system growth and volume. Because if plants have bigger root systems, then they can secrete more of that carbon down into the roots and be able to store more carbon in our soils. And so ultimately, if they can find these genes in Arabidopsis, this watercress, then perhaps we can find the genes in wheat or in corn or in rice and try to develop bigger root systems on these agronomic crops so that as they are planted and grown all around the world, as they grow, they can sequester more carbon as they are also generating our food. However, one of the big issues with this is that, again, consumers are still very weary about genetic engineered or genetically modified food crops. Not to mention, as a result, farmers are also hesitant to grow these because they know if they start transitioning to all GMO crops, then this may have a negative impact on their bottom line as consumers aren't necessarily desiring to eat these kinds of foods. However, that being said, this is a biotechnological solution to a climate change issue. And again, trying to genetically modify plants to have bigger root systems to be able to sequester more carbon and increase the soil organic matter around the world. The next two solutions are more about shifting our cultural practices, the, the management selections that we have in our farming systems. So as I already mentioned, the Palouse is a wheat growing region and there is this really cool cohort of growers called Shepherd's Grain as they're shepherding and stewarding their land to be able to grow wheat in a way that is promoting, again, soil health and soil conservation. Shepherd's Grain is a consortium of farmers that they believe that the best way to grow rich grain is through no-till practices. And so you can actually go to Washington and buy flour or buy baked goods that is coming from wheat that was grown in these conservation ag no-till systems. And they are sold with this label of Shepherd's Grain. And they have on their website, for every 50 pounds of wheat flour that you purchase, 1.2 kilograms of carbon has been sequestered in the soil. And so this is a direct way that you can consume food that is promoting climate change mitigation through the form of carbon sequestration. And I was actually just up in Seattle a few 
months ago and I went to a bakery and they were selling cinnamon rolls that had been baked with shepherd's grain flour and you could buy the flour raw there. It's called Sea Wolf. They're based in Fremont. So for all my Seattle friends, go check it out. Support Shepherd's Grain and support climate change mitigation. Okay, lastly, here's the third way that, again, agriculture can help draw down, sequester more carbon, and help mitigate the impacts of climate change. And this is pioneering research that's been happening at the Land Institute that is out of Salinas, Kansas. The Land Institute is a premier research institute that has been looking at how we can transition our agriculture away from conventional monocropping annual systems to biodiverse, rich soil promoting perennial systems. And they've pioneered a lot of research to show that organic can be just as effective, can be just as productive, and just as efficient as conventional agriculture. But one of the really important things that they're researching and trying to do is cross-breed perennial wheatgrass with our annual wheat that we grow today. What do I mean by this? Well, again, when we talk about prairies, these are perennial systems. These are grasses that grow for years and years and years on end. They may go dormant in the winter, but they come back in the spring and they continue to grow and they have food. And this is ultimately where our wheat that we grow today came from. We have artificially selected and bred for wheat that has big grain, that has not a lot of biomass, but really focuses on the yield. And so we have a higher harvest index. And, and this is ultimately kind of how we've really selected all types of crops to be. And so there's little investment in our root system, which is again why Salk Institute is addressing that. But also there's little investment into promoting long-term vitality and growth of the plant. And so by going back to the original drawing board, going back to these native wheatgrass species that are perennial in nature, we are now trying to crossbreed the high yielding grains that we have now with the perennial native grasses that were existent in the prairies a century ago. And so by doing this, we can now go out and plant a wheat cultivar that goes into the ground and it can yield for over five, six seasons, as opposed to having to till it at the end of one season and replant a new one and again continue to disturb the soil. And so by having a perennial grain, we can minimize our soil intervention, we can preserve our soil, and as a result, we can store more carbon in the form of organic matter in our soils. Now the real question is, okay, it can grow and last multiple seasons, but how does it compare in terms of yield? Well, they are getting close. It's not perfect, right? There are trade-offs when you talk about breeding. And I just want to iterate, this isn't a genetically modified process that is occurring at the Land Institute, but there are trade-offs, right? And so as of now, their most promising perennial wheat cultivar are yielding anywhere between 50 to 70% of our conventional commercial grains that we have in operation today. So we're getting close. This is the type of traditional agricultural innovation that can be made to really revolutionize the way that we grow food in a way that is sustainable for the planet. And of course, our favorite company, Patagonia, saw this and was very excited and intrigued by this innovation. And they've now developed a new beer 
that is made from perennial wheat. So check it out. Patagonia has a beer made from this perennial wheat that's coming from the Land Institute. The beers are called Long Root Wit or Long Root Pale Ale. So again, Long Root, big root structures, perennial in nature. Again, this is where the the grain is coming from to generate these beers. These beers are brewed in Portland. So again, for all my Northwest friends, go check it out, find some, but I think you can also find it online as well. I will conclude with this. What is so fascinating about these last two solutions, this idea of farming without tillage and breeding new grains with a perennial nature, high yielding big root system to store more carbon. These technologies, these innovations, these cultural practice changes are not decades out. They're happening now. They have the potential to change the course of our agricultural industry, but also the course of climate change's impacts. And so it's imperative that we support these forms of agriculture. It's imperative that we as consumers are aware of where we can spend our money so that we can support the innovators and the farmers who are doing things in the right way. And so ultimately, that's why really I'm here and I'm yelling into this microphone because I feel like this is so important because agriculture more than really anything else has such a tremendous impact on our natural world and we need to be doing things in a different way. And there are farmers who are trying to do it and we need to support them. And so please educate yourselves, be aware of how things are produced and where it's coming from so we can continue to fight with every dollar that we spend and i will be right here helping guide you giving you the information that you need and if you guys have ever have any questions feel free to send them in and let's chat about it some more okay whoo rant over i'm gonna cool off but ultimately carbon is an issue right it's in our environment it's in our atmosphere at excessive levels and it's driving the warming and the cataclysmic changes that we're seeing around the world And I believe there's really no better way to try and reduce the amount of carbon in our atmosphere by harnessing the beautiful process that has been given to us in the form of plants through the process of photosynthesis. So let's leverage this biochemical reaction. Let's leverage this amazing gift that gives us oxygen to breathe and stores the carbon in our air. And let's harness it by supporting agricultural innovations that are doing this properly all right i'm done i'm done thank you for listening thanks for tuning in we'll see you here next week for more environmental news lectures and interviews with the experts have a great weekend